Thank you, Jim, and uh, thanks to all the members of the committee. It's good to be here in the next-door neighbor state of uh, Georgia and Alabama. My name is Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, I'm sober tonight, and that's the most important thing that I'm going to tell you in this next hour, that uh, it is by the grace of a loving God and his gift of you to me that I didn't take a drink today. And the miracle of that is that I didn't even want one. It's good to uh, see some people I haven't seen in a long time and some uh, friends from various parts of the country. Uh, we were talking about at dinner. Uh, someone uh, made the remark about Johnny down here. They said that uh, they heard him speak when they were just a few months sober. And when he said how many years he had in the program, they thought he was God. <laughs> I heard Johnny when I was about a year sober, and I thought he was lying. <laughs> Nobody go that long without a drink. <laughs> and then my sweetheart Peggy down here. It's always good to see uh, Peggy, um, especially when uh, Dick's not around. <laughs> Take him a tape. <laughs> it is good to be with you this weekend and to uh, have a chance to share with you uh, my becoming a miracle. And I think we all are. Um, when I first came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you people started talking to me about this thing called an alcoholic personality, and I didn't understand what that was all about. And um, the longer I stayed around and the more questions I asked, the more answers I got and the more confused I got. I couldn't get an answer. What is an alcoholic personality? And finally, an old-timer came up to me and said, uh, Son, I'm going to tell you what an alcoholic personality is so you'll know once and for all. And I'm going to tell you this little story. And if you've heard this story before, you're going to hear it again. It's the story of the little drunk who was walking along the beach one day, and he found half buried in the sand a bottle. And he pulled it out of the sand and uncorked it in hopes of finding a few stray drops in the bottom. Instead, there was a puff of smoke, and in an instant, there standing in front of him in the sand was a fella about nine feet tall with a big turban on his head. The little drunk rubbed his eyes and blinked. I mean, he'd had some bad DTs in his time, but he'd never seen anything like this. It spoke. It said, I'm your genie. You have three wishes. What is your first wish? Well, the little fellow didn't have to think too long. He said, I'd like to have a bottle of bourbon that's never empty. Another puff of smoke, another instant, and sitting in front of him in the sand was a great big jug, and he picked it up, and he uncorked it and took a whiff, and he could tell it was the good stuff. He tilted it up, and he took a great big chug out of it and then looked down at it and still right to the top. He tilted it up and guzzled at it for about 15 seconds, took it down, looked at it, still right to the top. The little fella turned that jug up, and he guzzled at it for about a minute and a half, most he'd had in a month. And when he tilted it down, it was still right to the top. The genie said, is that all right? He said, that's wonderful. He said, you have two more wishes. What would you like? He said, I want two more, just like this one. <laughs> That's the only time tonight that I'm going to take your inventory. But if you understand that story, you're in the right place tonight. Because you can go out here on the streets of Huntsville and you can start telling that little story to people and they look at you real funny and they scratch your head and say, well, if this one's never going to be, why? They don't get it. They don't get it. And I've quit trying to make them get it because they don't understand. They never did understand me. 
but you did. And when I showed up at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, gently nudged, kicked, and pushed from behind, you understood, and I knew I was home, and I knew I belonged. Because, you see, I never belonged anywhere in my life before. I never fit anywhere in my life before. I was um, born in a little bitty tiny town up in the northeast corner of the state of Georgia. Little bitty town. I mean, in that little town I grew up in, they used to say there was three things you could do on Saturday night. You could watch them unload the truck at the A&P. You could watch the water tank leak. Or you could go across the Savannah River into South Carolina and buy beer and drink. And I can assure you I did not arrive at your doors from too much water tank watching. <laughs> my story, I do believe, with all my heart, has to go back far beyond my first drink at the age of 15. Um, because from my very earliest memory, I was a square peg looking for a round hole. I never fit, never belonged. Scared of people, scared of myself. Um, my mom used to send me to the grocery store as a kid to pick up an item or two, and I would, rather than stop a clerk and ask where it was, I'd wander up and down the aisles for 30 minutes if I had to. Scared little kid. Um, but when I was 15 years old, under peer pressure or uh, curiosity or whatever, Somebody said one Saturday night you want to go over to Carolina and uh, buy some beer, and I said, why not? And we went over the old muddy Savannah River, and we bought a, a case of beer and came back and sat down on the banks of the uh, Savannah River, and someone un, uh, popped open a uh, Paps Blue Ribbon and put it in my hand. I tilted it up and took a great big swallow, and it was beyond a shadow of a doubt the most vile, putrid, god-awful, horrible-tasting stuff I had ever put in my mouth. Only drank six that night. It was awful. I hated that crap. But, but, somewhere between the second and the third beer, the click went off right back here. You know what the click? Because all of a sudden, little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. And suddenly, I was smarter and wittier and handsomer and sexier than I had ever been in my entire life, or anybody I had ever known in my entire life. In that instant, I was immediately Clark Gable. Still say, Peggy, we should have gotten together. She was Marilyn. And I knew I had found a friend, because I could stand that awful taste for that wonderful feeling. And I drank for that feeling for a lot of years. And I made a decision that night, I really think, on the banks of that old river, that I had found a friend that would be my friend for the rest of my life. And it almost was. Um, and, and, and for all of those years that I drank, I thought that every other person who ever drank, drank just to get that feeling, just to get that uh, all the fears gone and all the, the anxiety gone. You know, some people don't drink for that. You know, I've got some friends that I call friends, and I think they are. They come home at night and before dinner have a drink. A drink. You know, those words don't even go together for me. I don't understand the concept of a What good is a drink? 
Better be a real big drink. I don't remember ever having a drink or wanting one, but some people do. You know, I, 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 I hear people say, no, 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 no more for me. I'm beginning to feel tipsy. Well, of course you are. <laughs> now let's get going. I told you, they don't get it. Never did. I didn't drink that much in high school because in a little bitty tiny town like that, there's not a whole lot of a thing called anonymity. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And so I had to drink when I could sneak around and hide. And I kept, you know, I didn't have liquor hit around the house. I had little bottles of tips hit all around the house. Of course, I didn't know back then that stuff stinks worse than any booze ever did. But when I went off to college, I suddenly had my first taste of anonymity. I was suddenly thrust into the University of Georgia into a, 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 a student population that was over three times that of my whole hometown. And nobody cared how much little Billy Sanders drank. So he started drinking every day. And I very quickly discovered that liquor was quicker, and some of it even tasted better. And um, I uh, began my sojourn through college. Now, a lot of people talk about they're wonderful memories of college. And I've been back to a couple of college reunions, and people say, you remember when I said, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't have that many great, wonderful memories of college. I've got a few that are pretty vivid. Uh, I got nearly got thrown out of school about 18 or 20 times. Uh, stayed in a lot of trouble. Dean of Manth University, a man named Dean Bill Tate, had a, had a bench outside of his office that got to be known as the Bill Sanders Bench. Because I sat on it more than anybody else sat on it. And um, I found out at the University of Georgia that they are very unpatriotic. I hate to say that about my alma mater, but they are. Because I nearly got thrown out of the University of Georgia for singing our national anthem. Of course, it was at 3 o'clock in the morning in front of an infirmary full of patients <laughs> to an empty flagpole. Um, they got a great tradition, and some of you who are not uh, familiar with it may not know that at the University of Georgia they have a, uh, a chapel bell out behind the, the big old historic chapel there, and there's a great tradition that after football games they ring the chapel bell into the night, and they've even got a, a roster that goes back for like 90 years of uh, people who have rung the chapel bell after the, the ball games, and you're, when you ring that bell, your name goes in that historic roster, and it's in, ensconced in the library at the university. I rang the chapel bell. My name's not in that roster. Of course, when I rang it, it was Easter Sunday morning at about 3 o'clock. And football season been over about three months. And it wasn't the dean of men that came looking for me that night. It was the mayor of Athens. And he wasn't happy. Um, that's kind of the way my college career went. Uh, you could always spot me and my roommate, uh, when I was a freshman at the university, my roommate and I, when we were wandering around at night, uh, drunk, because he was always leading me around when, when we were drinking. And the only thing kind of weird about that is my roommate was blind. <coughs> but when he'd get drunk, he still went in the same line. And he could tell, like, when we were passing a tree by the sound bouncing off the tree. 
Sometimes it was me bouncing off the tree, you know. <laughs> when I was a junior at the University of Georgia, I had another roommate. And uh, during my junior year, I applied for a, an internship to work in the profession that I've been in uh, really since I was 13 years old, and that's the broadcasting business. And I applied to, for an internship to work for the big 50,000-watt Clear Channel Voice of the South, WSB, in Atlanta. Dream of every kid in broadcasting to have a chance to work at that great station. As fate would have it, of the several hundred that applied, my roommate and I won the only two internships that year. In the spring of that year, he and I traveled the 60 or 70 miles to Atlanta to find a, an apartment to rent for the summer and to uh, go by the station and meet the people we'd be working with that summer. They were all stars to us. After we got through, we were on cloud nine, top of the world. Life couldn't get any better than this, and we decided to go have a few drinks and celebrate. We did. And then we drove the 60 or 70 miles back to Athens to return the car to the friend that we'd borrowed it from. And when we got the car back to his apartment, decided to have a few more drinks. We didn't want this day to end. It just, you know, everything I'd ever wanted in my life had come right down to the, right down to the wire. And sometime around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I began to do what I was, by this time was doing every time I got drunk, and that's acting like a total raving lunatic. And I reached up on the wall in a, a big old huge antique gun collection that the uh, fellow had in his apartment. And I took down an old long barrel Colt 22 pistol and I aimed it at my roommate and said, Stick him up! He threw his hands up in mock surrender. And I pulled the trigger and there was a sound like thunder. And in a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. A few hours later at the local hospital, they were to tell us that Wayne would live but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. In the early morning hours in a hospital room in Athens, Georgia, a strange thing happened. My roommate reached up from that hospital bed and put his hand on my arm and said, Bill, don't blame yourself. It was an accident. It could just as easily have been the other way around. I know you didn't mean to do it. He forgave me immediately, but I didn't forgive me for more than 20 years. I used it as an excuse to crawl into the bottle and stay. I went on that summer and uh, worked that internship. My roommate spent the summer in a, an Atlanta hospital going through surgery after surgery in a vain attempt to restore the use of his legs. Unfortunately, it was not to happen. And my pattern was a simple one. I went to work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I would work through the 11 o'clock news at night. And when the 11 o'clock news was over, I would uh, head across from the white columns on Peachtree to the Riviera Motel uh, bar and uh, gather with a bunch of other media people from all over Atlanta and start drinking. And we'd drink till the bars closed at 1.45. I never knew what the magic of 1.45 in the morning was, but that was the closing time back then for the bars. And we'd drink till then. If there were enough of us still sitting around, and there usually were, they'd lock the doors, leave us one bartender and go home, and we'd sit there and drink till 4 or 5, sometimes 6 o'clock in the morning and watch the sun come up. I'd stumble out of that bar into a cab and head back to that uh, dingy, dark, lonely apartment, fall into a bed and pass out, wake up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and repeat the same cycle. The summer that was to have been the dream of a lifetime was nothing more than a foggy, hazy nightmare. But as long as I had the cycle, as long as I could, I managed to make it through it. But then that fall, I went back to school to try to finish my senior year. 
and I didn't have the cycle anymore, and it all came crumbling in. And I so I set a plan into motion. I started going to the uh, college infirmary and uh, talking to one of the three doctors there and telling them how much trouble I was having sleeping. And he'd prescribe a sleeping pill and I'd take it down to the pharmacy and get it, take it back, put it in the nightstand drawer in my dormitory room. Next couple of days, I'd go up, see another one of the doctors, do the same thing. Repeated it over and over again. They weren't very good at record keeping, so they didn't even know how much of that of sleeping pills they were giving me. And then I waited until one Friday afternoon when my new roommate was headed home to show his brand new car he'd bought to his family. And I put my plan into motion. I stood at the dormitory window and I watched him as he pulled out of the parking lot and headed up Lumpkin Street, headed out of Athens. And as soon as the car was out of sight, I sat down, closed the drapes, closed the blinds, sat down on the side of the bed and took out all those little bottles and emptied those pills out onto the nightstand of what was later determined to be between 50 and 60 sleeping pills. And one by one and two by two, swallowed them down, turned out the light and pulled up the covers. And I thought for more than 20 years that it was some kind of huge coincidence that my roommate's brand new car broke down at the city limits of Athens and had to be towed back. And that he came into that dormitory room and found me in the... Uh, with all the little bottles on the side of the bed, and he knew what uh, frame of mind I'd been in and put it together real quickly and called the ambulance. I said I thought that it was a coincidence because today I don't believe in coincidence anymore. I love the definition that I heard a few years ago that a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. I believe that it was the first time that the God that you people have led me to and helped me to meet and understand looked down and said, Big boy, I'm not through with you yet. Many, many times, all of the drunks, the smashed cars, the insane places that I found myself or that people found me over the years. And I don't know tonight why I'm still alive and I'm still here. I hope that if I show up sober, that I'll be in the right place at the right time for whatever God's will may be. And you've given me the steps to be able to try to do that one day at a time. It was after that incident that I began the great American tradition of visiting the neighborhood shrink. I cannot tell you how many of those individuals that I saw over the years that were to follow, or how many thousands of dollars of my own and my family's that was paid to these people. I only know that every time I ever walked out of any of their offices, I walked out damning them because they were not doing one single thing to help me. Now, this is a program of rigorous honesty, so I am forced to admit the remote possibility that one or more of those people might have been able to help me if I had ever once told them the truth. <laughs> Somewhere around the third, fourth, or fifth question, they always say, do you think you might have a drinking problem? And my answer was always the same. No, I drink fine. And they'd treat something else. I eventually did exit the University of Georgia. I did it with a diploma in my hand. I've never been fairly sure if I earned it or if they just got tired of me hanging around over there ringing the chapel bell and singing to the flagpoles. I'm not going to ask because I've gotten used to it hanging around my office or around my, my home or office the last 30 years. I ended up in another North Georgia town in Gainesville, Georgia, and I went to work in a radio station there, and I knew that I was out of college now, I was supposedly not a kid anymore, that I needed to straighten out my life, try to be uh, a citizen of the community, whatever that is, 
and, um, and, uh, and go straight. So I did. I joined the church, and I joined civic clubs, and I became a scout leader, and I uh, got a very responsible job, and I joined a local fraternal club there that had the only bar in town, and guess which one got the most of my attention? Wasn't the Boy Scouts. Wasn't very long till I met a beautiful girl. And it wasn't very long after that that I knew that I wanted that girl to be my wife. But I also knew that I needed to clean up my act, get myself together, cut down on my drinking. Until I really got to know that girl. And I found out that woman liked to drink just as much as I did. We hit it off fine. And it was very, very short time after that she became my first wife. Now, we had a pattern. We'd go to that club every night. As soon as we get off work about 6, 6.30 in the evening, and we drink until they close the place around 1 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes we'd even order dinner. A few times I think we even ate it. I didn't usually do that. It interferes, you know. Um, and uh, we'd leave there and go home, stumbling home, and uh, fall to bed and get up and go to work the next day. Now, now for most people... When you get up the next day after one of those nights and you go into work, the person at the next desk or the next office or maybe the person across the hall can look at you and go, uh-huh, had a good one last night, didn't you? You ought to work in radio. You ought to have to sign a radio station on the air at 6 o'clock in the morning and sound cheerful. <laughs> when the bottom of your mouth tastes like a birdcage. And you, your head feels like the Russian army did maneuvers on it the night before. It was then that I first really learned to pray. I'd get that first record start started on the turntable, turn it down just as low as it would go, drape myself over the microphone and say, Oh, God, thank you that this ain't television. I would never pull it off. And I, I do thank God. I, I, I later got in, into television, but, but uh, those years in radio... My audiences never knew how many newscasts that I did lying flat on my back with a microphone pulled right down over my face. It was the only way I could make the room stop going around. I know today that it was then that that uh, marriage to that first wife of mine began to come apart at the seams. But then something happened that we knew was going to make it all right. She came home one day and said, guess what? We're going to have a baby. And through the pregnancy, we talked about the fact that we need to clean up our act, get ourselves together, and learn how to be responsible parents. And when the baby came, we did exactly that for two or three weeks. Then we discovered the great American tradition of the babysitter. And we were right back there in the club every night together. And... Um, you know, I hear people when they come into the program and they talk about marriages coming apart and all that, and they, you hear them talking about that their main problem was communication. And I don't understand that. Never did. Because my wife and I communicated. I mean, you could ask our neighbors four doors down the street. And they'd tell you, the Sanders communicate. They could even tell you what we were communicating about. Our communication sessions usually had a particular pattern. Sunday afternoon is the best time. You know, you got long, continuous. Sunday afternoon, we get started in one of our discussions. And I would hang in there with the best of them till it became apparent that I was on the losing end of this deal. 
And then I would grab my bottle, storm out the back door, slam the door, get in my car, peel up the driveway, out of here, up the hill. I don't need to stay here and listen to this. Over and over and over and over again it happened. And one Sunday afternoon, in particular, we got into one of our discussions. I knew I had this one hands down. I had, every once in a while I'd even write my facts down on an index card. I had this one. No way to lose it. About ten minutes into it, it was abundantly apparent that I had miscalculated once again. So I grabbed my bottle, stormed out the back door, slammed the door, jumped in my car, peeled up the driveway, up the hill, out of here. I don't need to stay here and listen to this. Just like every other Sunday afternoon. Only thing different about this Sunday afternoon, I still had my pajamas on. Well, Karen, at least I had my pajamas on. <laughs> You'll have to wait on that one. Well, my wife did what any sweet, caring, loving, thoughtful wife would do. She sent a friend to come get me and bring me home. The only thing wrong with that is a friend happened to be a police captain. And my friend Captain Harold found me sitting in the Holiday Inn parking lot, minding my own business, talking to my bottle. He came up and tapped on the car window. I looked up, hey, Harold. He began to suggest to me that I get out of my car and get into his car and go with him so he could take me home. I told him that he could, I, I said, no, thank you. <laughs> he began to talk to me about his relative size to mine and, and his Marine Corps wrestling experiences and the, the, the impact of that billy club hanging on his belt up the side of one's head. And, you know, the more he talked, the more it made sense I might want to consider going with him. I was drunk, I wasn't stupid yet. So I got out of my car and I got into the police car with uh, Captain Harold and we started home, I thought. About two turns, I knew we were not headed toward my house. Two more turns, I knew where we were going because we pulled into the emergency room parking lot of the local county hospital. Before I could protest, say a word or anything else, he opened that police car door, ushered me out of that car into that hospital, and before I could say anything, I was checked into a room. You won't believe how fast you can get checked into a hospital room when you already got your pajamas on. <laughs> Most hospitals got this thing about Drunks in pajamas holding vodka bottles sitting in their lobby. So next time you worry about filling out all them insurance papers, just go in like that. You know. <laughs> Work. I checked out of that hospital a couple of weeks later and detoxed and cleaned up with family and friends and all that hopeful. But before the sun went down that night, I was drunk. It was very shortly after that 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 first wife of mine and I decided to do the only thing we knew to do. A lot of people had suggested that we do, and that was move. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how much sense that makes when you do it? <laughs> you see, I had not met a guy that was an important part of my life for a number of years a guy named Bill B. from up in the mountains in North Georgia. He was a good old boy. And Bill said one thing I learned real quick, that no matter where I go, there I am. And I didn't know that back then. 
So we moved to Atlanta and all around Atlanta, and we kept following us. <laughs> I got involved in a part of the business that I've been in since then, of the broadcasting business, and part of it involved that was involved in was a thing called public relations. And that was interesting because I didn't even know what public relations was. That little bitty town where I came from, you didn't have relations in public. <laughs> but I found out what it was about, and there was all kinds of stuff, and part of it was some stuff I didn't know about that I liked a lot. One was a thing called a three-martini lunch. I like five better. You can have many as you want to. But <clears throat> another thing I had never known in those smaller towns was a thing called a happy hour. We don't have them in Atlanta anymore, but they used to. <laughs> thing called happy hour where you could go in and you order one drink and they'd give you two. I mean, I was regularly saw two drinks in front of you, but I mean they really set two drinks in front of you. Sometimes three. And I also discovered that if you stretch those five martini lunches and you push happy hour back this way, you could make the two meet and then you didn't have to go back to work in the afternoon. I didn't notice that uh, that suited my staff that worked for me just fine. Because while the fellow that came in in the morning could at times be a pretty nice guy, the one that came back after one of those long lunches was a different person. You see, that best friend of mine, that bottle, had begun to turn on me. I'd come back from those lunches surly, mean, argumentative, judgmental. I also didn't notice that my little girl, who by now was five or six years old, didn't invite friends home to spend the night because you never knew when dad's going to come home in the middle of the night, drunk, violent, smashing furniture, throwing television sets through plate glass windows, dragging her out of bed at three o'clock in the morning demanding that she clean up her room or clean up the living room or some other insane. I didn't notice that the only look in her eyes was one of fear and hate and disgust. It was not until years later that I was to see a diary in which she had written, If only my daddy would die. Dear God, if only my daddy would die. Of course, the next morning I wouldn't remember any of that behavior. But I had a wife who very gladly reported it in graphic detail. And of course, I would immediately deny it until she led me around the house looking at the evidence. And then I would walk into the dining room, and there sitting at the breakfast table would be that little girl staring down into her cereal bowl. And I would take her by the hand, and I'd say, Sweetheart, come on. Let's go, Karen. You and Dad are going to take a little walk. And we'd go walking out down the sidewalk, and I would say, Sweetheart, I don't remember what happened last night. I guess I had too much to drink, but I want to promise you this, that it will never, never never happen again. And my disease did not allow me to see that there was not even a flicker of belief in that little girl's eyes. Because you see, we'd taken too many walks and she'd heard too many empty promises. My best friend in the bottle did not allow me to see that. My life went more and more downhill. More and more nights I didn't come home at all. Began waking up in strange beds with strange people. Strange towns.
began that great tradition of uh, looking in the nightstand drawer for the phone book to figure out what town I'm in, sitting down with credit card slips and trying to piece together where I'd been for the last week. That is, as long as I had credit cards the last couple of years, I couldn't even get a gas card. Quite a few of those nights in those latter years, I couldn't even get a nightstand either. You know, I remember when I started drinking um, liquor in those fancy places, because I, I grew up in a little rural community, and a farm boy, and uh, I drank in those fancy places in Atlanta, and, and, the, and you know, the crystals, the uh, stemware and all that stuff. I said, this is class. This is real class. I, I, it used to be a big deal to me that there were about, oh, 40 or 50 bars in Atlanta that I could walk in, and the bartender would say, hey, Bill, and he'd set my drink on the bar, and he'd be waiting for me by the time I got there. I said, boy, that makes a statement about me. Yeah, it did. It wasn't the one I thought it made, but it made a statement. Of course, there were more and more of those bars where they would not set it on the bar, and they would not let me into that bar. I mean, I've been, I've been thrown out of some of the nicest places in Atlanta, some of the worst places in Atlanta, too. And, and, and the people I used to drink with, the business cronies that I would go to the bar with at 5 o'clock in the afternoon in some of the nice places. And, and, and when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and some of them said, well, yeah, I never knew you had a drinking problem. You, we'd go have a couple of drinks together in the afternoon. We'd all get, go out and get in our cars and go home. I said, uh-huh, you did. You went home to your wife and your car and your daughter and your lawnmower. And I headed to another bar and then to another bar and then to another bar. And by, by the wee hours of the morning, I was on bars down on Stewart Avenue, south of Atlanta. Now, any of you that know anything about Atlanta know where Stewart Avenue is. It ain't too classy down there. Um, there are a whole lot of arguments settled with tire tools in places like that I went to down there. The class went right out the window because I'm going to tell you something. When you wake up in an Atlanta downtown city of Atlanta Park, and you realize your clothes are covered in dew, and the view in front of your eyes is you're looking out from underneath the bush that you've slept under all night up the nostrils of a policeman's horse. <laughs> Ain't no class in that, people. There is also no good comeback when he says, what are you doing down there? I've had 20 years to try to think of a comeback. I still hadn't got one. Johnny, maybe you can give me one. I, you, you woke up in a few. My wife no longer asked when I didn't come home where I'd been. I think that she prayed that I wouldn't, and more and more often I didn't. Uh, there were fewer and fewer friends, except the ones, of course, in the bar. Um, you know, th those were my close friends because they were always there for me especially if I was buying. Um, and I thank God that you're always here for me, too. But I, I do have to constantly remind myself that all those years sitting in all those bars, I do not remember one single bartender ever saying, you keep coming back and it'll get better. <laughs> and it didn't. I never asked where my wife was going when she left either. And one night she left the house and she was gone for about two or three hours and then she... Uh, came home, and I'm sitting in my recliner chair drinking right out of the bottle, you know, no more stemware, hell with that. And I'm, I'm slugging away at my uh, uh, bottle of scotch or whatever I was drinking. 
My wife came and stood right in front of my chair, and she said, Guess where I've been? And I said, Who gives, who, who cares? <clears throat> she didn't say anything. She said she did something really weird. She flipped a white poker chip into my lap. I looked down at it, and I looked back up at her, and I looked back at it, and I looked back at her, and I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. <laughs> well, y'all know where she'd been. She'd been to AA, and she told me. And I went into an absolute flying, perfect rage. Because there was no way on the face of this earth that that woman was an alcoholic. Because most assuredly, if she was, then it meant that it, she just couldn't be an alcoholic. It wasn't any way. It didn't bother her. She started going to those meetings. Every day. Sometimes two or three a day. I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall for her. I kept saying, you need to go to this thing a lot worse than I do. She didn't. She didn't. I've got to give her that. Oh, there were little clues left around, like I'd go in the bathroom, lift the toilet lid, and there's Hyatt Works taped to the... You know. those, those nights when I would come home and I'd crawl into bed and shove my arm under the pillow like I always sleep, and there's a piece of paper, and I'd pull it out, and it's that pamphlet with all them questions. I'd get to about the third one and go... Some did start changing, though. We weren't communicating as well. She'd walk off. I mean, I would have my index cards ready. I'd have everything. I'm ready for a good one. She'd go, eh, you people were getting to her. I knew eventually it was going to happen, though. She came in one night and, or one afternoon. She said, I'm going tonight to pick up a 90-day chip, and I would like for you. I said, uh-uh. Well, she cried, and I said, yeah, man, fine, okay, fine, on my conditions. Always, everything was on my conditions, I thought. Um, I said, I'll go in my own car. You see, sometimes she'd be gone to these meetings two or three hours. And I said, how long are those meetings? Hour. You were gone three. We went to Coco's and had coffee. Well, I didn't buy that for a minute. I didn't care where she went, but I couldn't see her drinking coffee somewhere. But anyway, I went in my own car so I could... And I said, where are we going? She said, it's called the 8111 Club. It's at 8111 Roswell Road. I said, okay, fine. I'll follow you. I got in the car and followed her a few miles, and we ended up at this little house sitting up in the trees, up on the hill, uh, back up in the woods, a pretty little house up there that had been converted. And I thought it was real ironic because I had passed that house virtually every day going home from the bar and had often thought I needed to stop and get to know the fellow that lived there because he obviously had a party every night. Well, that night, old Bill went to the party. I slipped in the back room, back uh, of that room. They had cleared all the petitions out in the house and, and, and made this one great big old room with some posts to hold the seat, roof up. And I slipped in the sliding glass door at the back and slid down behind one of those posts and crouched down. And for the next hour, I witnessed the biggest bunch of weirdos I had ever seen in my life. They read all that stuff at the first of the meeting. And then, then somebody uh, raised their hand. This fellow raised his hand and told him about how he had gotten three DUIs. DUIs, DWIs. What do you call them in Alabama? D, same thing. Okay. Um, 
He told him he had gotten three DUIs and everybody in the room cracked up. Next guy said he'd gotten six DUIs and been arrested for indecent exposure. They came unglued. And the more they talked, the more I thought, my God, if they knew some of the stuff that had happened to me, I could sound like Richard Pryor. Well, it went on and on and on and on. Finally, they came down to the end, and everybody stood up, and they went through this chip stuff, and then everybody stood up, and I turned around and started for the door, and somebody grabbed me by the hand from both sides, and they said the only thing in that hour that was familiar to me, and it was the Lord's Prayer. I remembered most of that. And that was over. I got out that door, started across that parking lot, getting out of that place. I got about halfway across the parking lot, and something grabbed me by the shoulder that felt like a steel vice. Spun me around, and I found myself looking up into the face of a fellow that was seven foot eleven. I know today he's only six six, but he looked a lot taller that night. I'd remember this guy in the meeting. I didn't remember what much of anybody had said, but this guy was different. Everybody else in the meeting said, "My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic," or "My name is Johnny, I'm an alcoholic," or "My name is Mary, and I'm an alcoholic." This guy was different. When he raised his hand, they called on him. He said, my name's Floyd, and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> this fella starts talking to me about drinking moonshine up in the mountains. And uh, I'm standing going, God Almighty, what is he doing? He don't even know who I am. Found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. <laughs> this guy talks to me about falling down in the woods in the winter and his face freezing to the ground. <laughs> and they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. Now remember, I had martinis that afternoon at the Diplomat. I kept inching toward my car, got all the way to the car, reached for the door handle, and he leaned against it. Now, remember, I went in my car. People came out and got in their cars, and they left. My wife came out, bye, gets in her car, and leaves. And it's me and Floyd. Well, he talked on there for about two and a half days. Seemed like it. I finally got away from him, got in the car, went home, walked into the back door of the house. My wife met me at the door and started to say something. I said, don't open your mouth. <laughs> I walked over to the kitchen cabinet and got one of those iced tea tumblers about that tall, put about three ice cubes in it, filled it up with scotch or vodka or something. I said, when I get through with this, we'll talk. Of course, you all know, over the time I got through with that, I couldn't talk. But the next day I did. I said, don't you ever, ever, ever try to get me to go back to one of those meetings, and she didn't. And further and further downhill, and more and more DUIs, more and more walks with my little girl, who by now is 12 years old. And um, finally, on the afternoon of July 26, 1982, I came out of a week-long blackout drunk. Whole week missing. I am sitting in that old recliner chair at home, and I look down, and in my left hand, there's an empty liquor bottle. And in my right hand, 
There is a cocked and fully loaded 22 pistol. I had not remembered picking up either one of them. And the thought that was going through my head was, is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Because if it is, you can have it. And through the fog of that Monday afternoon, as the sun went down, there came a voice. Voice of God? Maybe. Voice of an angel? Possibly. But it sounded an awful like, lot like a great big black-haired strapping hillbilly drunk named Floyd. And the words that came through to me were very simple. It's all I remember that he really said the message that night. He was, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I expected God to open up the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. And if where I was in the afternoon of July 26, 1982 can be any closer to hell on this earth, I hope I never know it. I got up out of that chair and I went in the bathroom, cleaned myself up as best I could, and I got in that car and drove a couple of miles back to the little house on the hill, the 8111 Club. And I walked in, slid in that sliding glass door behind, sat down behind that same post, and peeked around it to the front of the room. And folks, don't tell us God doesn't have a sense of humor, because sitting there chair in the meeting sat my wife. <laughs> she didn't see me till the end of the meeting. The end of the meeting, a man got up and explained the chips. And I got up out of my chair and took the longest walk I've ever taken in my life. Only about 30 feet, but it seemed like about 3,000 miles. And I walked in front of that room, and that man pressed a white poker chip into a trembling, sweating palm. And I closed my hand around it, and I walked back. I choose to believe with all my heart that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died, and that a new one walked away. Because by the grace of God and the tender, loving care of people like you in meetings like this from one end of this country to the other, I haven't had a drink since that night. And I thank God every day for it and for you, for the miracle and for you. You told me very, very early in my sobriety I needed to get a sponsor. Thought that was real weird because I'd had sponsors on my radio shows all my life. <laughs> Which one do you want me to use? Boomer Shine Pontiac? You told me it was a different kind of sponsor and you explained to me what it was. Well, as soon as I understood it, I decided I was going to do it scientifically. So I looked around for the sweetest, kindest, roly poliest, white haired old man I could find. One that I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt would daily pat me on the head and tell me what a wonderful member of Alcoholics Anonymous I was, and that he had never in his life seen anyone who worked the steps better than I was. It took me a little while, but I found that man. Ah, he was roly-polier than I am, snow-white hair, kindly eyes. I asked a man by the name of Doc Crandall to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. I knew I was in trouble in 30 seconds. Because the man said, fine, we'll sponsor each other. Now, we're going to lay the ground rules. First thing you do every morning, not the second thing, first thing you do every morning when you get up, you roll out of bed on your knees and you ask your God to keep you sober today. 
the last thing you do at night before you get back in bed is you get back down there and you say thank you. Well, I'd been around a few weeks. I said, Doc, um, I know this prayer stuff's important. Uh, I grew up going to church as a kid and even taught a Sunday school class one time. I had a hangover, but I, you know. Um, I know this prayer stuff's part of this thing, but I gotta be real honest with you. I'm not real comfortable with this knee business. He said, I didn't say a damn thing about you being comfortable. Ouch. And then I got my cockiest best. I said, my understanding, doctor, is that this is a program of suggestion. He said, it is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. That's how we started. Then he gave me this book. He said, I want you to take this book home and I want you to spend the next couple of weeks reading the first five chapters of that book. Every single word of it. And when you get through reading it, I want you to come back and we're going to sit down and talk about how you can make that work in your life. Well, now, I could get into that. I went by on my way home at the office supply place and I got me a couple of legal pads and some highlighters and some real sharp pencils and I went home and I cleared off the desk and I spread all this out and I opened that book up and I went to work. And man, I was highlighting and underlining and I struck through the steps that didn't have anything to do with me and, and, um, I, I wrote down the stuffs in this book that y'all had forgotten and left out. And I had notes and underlining and all that stuff. In about two weeks, I called Doc and said, I'm ready. He says, hot damn, come on over. So I gathered up my legal pads and my big book, and I went over and spread them out on his coffee table. He leaned back in his big old recliner and chair saying, lay it on me. I says, okay, right here. And looking at this first step, as I interpret, and that's as far as I got. He said, boy, that step don't need your interpreting, it needs your doing. Uh, yeah, I, I know, Doc, I know, I know. But, but, but what I think it means is, he said, Bill, if you'll look real closely, you'll note that they wrote it in English. It says what it means. They even put little numbers by it for smart college boys like you so you can follow along. That's how my journey through the steps began. And he led me through those steps, kicking and screaming and cussing and fighting at times, arguing. I remember, and I hope I never, never, ever, ever forget the day when I realized we were moving on along through these steps. And I asked the fatal question of Doc. Doc, what do we do when we get through working these steps? <laughs> never forget his words. Instantaneously, he said, you lay real still because you're dead. <laughs> I came to believe and understand either way. Doc also admonished everyone he knew and everyone he sponsored. If you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. You can't win that argument. If you get into an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose. I heard it up here, but I didn't hear it in here. And I'd been sober just a few months when I had to take my first business trip to Washington, D.C. And that Delta plane hadn't cleared the ground at Hartsfield International Airport in Atlanta till the meeting started up here. 800 miles from home, nobody up there knows you're an AA. 
You can tie one on tonight, and by the time you come home Friday, you can have it. You notice I didn't say have a drink. All the way up there, that those voices are going, you can, you can't, you should, you shouldn't, you can get away with it. No, you can't. Nobody will know. You'll know. I even looked around in that plane to see if anybody else was hearing those voices. They weren't. Plane touched down at National Airport, out of the plane, into a cab, headed for the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill, out of the cab, into the lobby. The minute I hit that big old atrium lobby, my radar spotted the bar way over there in the corner. I could hear the tinkling of the glasses and the music and the, 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 the laughter. Took less than ten minutes to check into that hotel room and come back down and stand in the doorway of that bar. And I stood there, probably close to five minutes, as the argument played out in my head. And Doc's admonition, if you get in an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you're going to lose, was nowhere in sight. And I lost. And I walked over and I sat down at the bar. And the bartender walked down and he stood in front of me for a second, looked down and smiled, paused, and said, Hi, pal, how about a Coke? The what? <laughs> and he pointed and said... I figured by that lapel pin you're wearing, that's what you'd want. I had forgotten to take off this damned AA pin. <laughs> i got to be rigorously honest. It wasn't this pin. For the, this is the first time I've ever spoken anywhere that I didn't have my pen. This is Peggy's pen. Thank you, Peggy. Well, he sat that Coke down, went down and served three or four other people. And came back and stood in front of me again. He looked down, and I'm still st sitting there staring at that Coke. <laughs> he said, you haven't got any business in here, do you? No. <laughs> he said, where you belong is three blocks down the street, upstairs over the furniture store. There's a meeting in 20 minutes. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> I went to that meeting that night, and I did two more things. I walked back into a bar in the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill, and I thanked an angel in the, in the shape of a bartender who'd saved my life. Another one of those coincidences. And the second thing I did is I got down on my knees beside a hotel room bed in our nation's capital. And I said, God, if you went to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again. And I haven't. I don't go in bars because I've got no business in bars. I don't belong in bars. I belong in rooms like this with people like you who understand me and what I am. I don't make excuses to go in bars. I remember my sponsor, Doc, one night at a meeting, a young fellow said <clears throat> he and some friends were going to a bar that night. Doc said, what for? He said, we're going to listen to the band. By their record... They hadn't got one. Then they're not any good. <laughs> God love him. Doc drummed into every one of our heads that the only reason you will ever take another drink as long as you live is because you want to. The rest is bull. On November 25th, 1985, my sponsor Doc Crandall went on a 12-step call. And never came home. As he and another 
member of AA struggled to take a shotgun away from a suicidal young man that Doc had been working with for several years. The shotgun accidentally discharged, and Doc caught it full in the stomach and died on the way to the hospital. He died doing what he loved doing the most, trying to help a drunk. The twilight hours of that evening, as I sat in Doc's den, where I'd sat so many times as I listened to him, the thought going through my mind is, how can I go on? How can I stay sober without the man who has guided my footprints, footsteps, who has led me, albeit kicking and screaming and crying and cussing sometimes? How can I go on without him? In the quiet stillness of that evening, the answer came. You do it by doing the things that he taught you to do and that his sponsor taught him and that his sponsor taught him and his sponsor taught him all the way back to the magic night in the spring of 1935 when the broken-down stockbroker and the has-been doctor sat in the gatehouse in Akron and said, do you think we might be able to stay sober if we help one another? Doc's sponsor, a man by the name of Bill Hollingsworth, a man I also love very dearly, he died a couple of years ago, nine days after his 40th AA birthday, and he was fond of saying that he believed with all of his heart, and so do I, in 1935, God looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough. I've got to give him a way out. And look at the way he gave us. We could have been shut away as many of us were and should have been. We could have been isolated from society as the outcast that we had carved for ourselves out of our lives. We could have gone through the pain and the suffering and the misery that so many people with fatal diseases do. But look at what he gave us. He gave us each other. And more love and more laughter and more joy and more sharing than most of us had ever known in our lives or ever dreamed of knowing. And then he topped it off with a relationship with himself that few people on this earth will ever know why I believe with all my heart that we are the luckiest people on the face of this earth. In the days and weeks after Doc's death, I was surrounded by the greatest bunch of sponsorees in the world. And I learned what Doc meant when he said, I get more out of this than you do. They carried me until I could carry myself. They loved me until I could love myself. They made me talk when I didn't want to talk. They took me to meetings when I didn't want to go. And I love every one of them with all my heart. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a club, not an organization. For me, it's a way of life. It's a way of life that I dreamed of all of my life, searched for all of my life. But until I found you, I didn't have a clue where to, where to find it. I referred in my talk to that woman that was my first wife. Because, you see, I'm not married to the same woman anymore. And I thank God she's not married to the same man anymore. Instead of a divorce becoming final on December 30th, 1982, that first wife of mine and I stood in front of the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier. And we renewed our vows. And we started all over again. You showed us the way. The last 11 and a half years have been fantastic. 
I love that woman with all my heart. Miss Peggy knows she often goes with me when I go to speak. And she's on the front row as my greatest cheerleader. But I can tell you tonight that she is in Atlanta, Georgia, thinking of me sharing with you. And you gave us that. In closing, I would share with you, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. Two years ago next week, my little girl and I took another walk together. This time it was down the aisle of a church. And oh, she looked like a princess in that long white flowing gown. And I looked like a damn penguin in that monkey suit. <laughs> I cried all the way down the aisle. I looked down at the front and there stood the young man that was to soon be her husband. I'm very fortunate. I, I love my son-in-law very, very much. I, I remember the first time that we met him and we went out to dinner with uh, our daughter Karen and, and, and Paul. And uh, it, it worried me tremendously because when we sat down in the restaurant, the very first thing he did was to order a beer. And he sat there and nursed that thing for two hours. <laughs> And I said, you ain't never going to make it in my little club drinking like that. <laughs> and he won't. And I walked down that aisle and I placed my little girl's hand into the hand of another man. And the two of them turned to face the same minister who had married her mother and me 25 years earlier. And who had renewed our vows 10 years before. And they began their life together. That's not when the greatest tears were to come, not at the wedding. The greatest tears were to come at the reception that would follow. You see, a few weeks earlier, my little girl had said, Dad, at the reception, I'm going to have the first dance with Paul, but I want to have the second dance with you. And I said, oh, well, um, okay. Um, Karen, sweetheart, Dad, when he was drinking, I used to drink, used to dance a whole lot like John Travolta and Fred Astaire put together. But I don't dance quite as good anymore. Maybe you better tell me what we're going to dance to, and and Mom and I can practice a little bit. Nope, not going to tell you. So at that reception, I watched the handsome prince and the beautiful princess as they danced around the dance floor together, and as I and several hundred others looked on. Then the music ended, and my beautiful daughter came and stood in front of me, and she reached out her hands. And as we moved out onto the dance floor, the music began. And the words of the song were, did you ever know that you're my hero and everything I'd like to be? I can soar higher than an eagle. You are the wind beneath my wings. Oh God, what a miracle had been worked in the lives of this family, ripped, shredded, and torn by alcoholism. And you and God and Alcoholics Anonymous had put it back together. And as we danced around that dance floor, I looked into my little girl's eyes and I saw love 
And I saw respect instead of fear and hate. And there are times when I go to share in other cities that my little girl goes with me. And she is always on the front row, looking up and smiling. And I see pride. And I thank you. It's only been a few months ago that our son-in-law and daughter and wife and I were having dinner one night. And my daughter made a remark that was totally innocent. And yet it brought me to tears once again. She said, you know, Dad, I just realized the other day that I have a hard time remembering what you and Mom used to be like when you were drunk. We're not the only ones that are healed. God, through this program and through the sister programs to it, heals lives and puts families together. And so in closing, can there possibly any wonder that I would say to you, did you ever know that you, you are my heroes and you are everything I've ever wanted to be? And together, I believe we can all soar like eagles because he is the wind beneath our wings. Thank you very much.